So, when was your last checkup? Oh no, not you. Although that's important too, but when was your last vehicle checkup? When it comes to service, nobody knows your Chevy better than your local Chevy dealer. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule an appointment today. Here's Nylander the Oilers own sharp angle. Shot, he scores! Here's Seaver great circle, fires, he scores! Oh, he's leveled by Andrew Shaw with a thunderous check. Here's a loose puck in front, they score! It's time for another episode of Blackhawks Crazy. Presented by FanList. Keith will move it ahead to Shaw. To Doc over the Saber line down the left. Hey, he's the score! Kirby Doc! Here's Doc with the back and he scores! Kirby Doc! The first two-goal night of Kirby Doc's career. Chris Bowden and Joe Brand break down the latest storylines surrounding your favorite Chicago hockey team. Each game I'm getting better and pushing myself to strive to be better. That's hockey, baby! Here's Chris Bowden and Joe Brand. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Blackhawks Crazy Podcast presented by FanList. I'm your pre- and post-game host on WGN Radio. Chris Bowden joined, as always, by Joe Brand, our strident, hardworking reporter for Blackhawks uh, home games and uh, host of WGN Sports here on uh, Saturdays, sometimes Sundays as well, and the voice of the Kane County Cougars. And before we dive into what has been an 0-3 road trip, I'm going to let Joe take care of some business here first. <laughs> well, strident. Wow, thank you. I'm going to have to look that word up. Uh, yeah, Blackhawks Crazy Podcast is sponsored by FanList. FanList is the best platform for season ticket holders to sell their tickets. Are you a Blackhawks season ticket holder who sells multiple games? Get over to FanList.com slash BlackhawksCrazy, spelled F-A-N-L-Y-S-T dot com. FanList partners with multiple ticket marketplaces and lists tickets for sales across marketplaces of all kinds, all at once. Sites like StubHub, Vivid seats seat geek game time and many more and they do all the work multiple marketplaces will increase your ticket exposure causing tickets to sell faster and for higher prices plus fan list is free to use registration and listing tickets are free when tickets sell fan list charges the industry standard 15 percent of the final sale price it's the same rate that all those major marketplaces charge there are no hidden costs or added fees to use fan list it's the best way for you as a season ticket holder to sell your tickets Go to fanlist.com slash BlackhawksCrazy to receive a $20 bonus on your first sale. F-A-N-L-Y-S-T dot com slash BlackhawksCrazy. Nailed it. Joe did it again. <laughs> Joe did it I again. read something. Thank you. Yes. And uh, I come in here groggy because after uh, walking out of WGN Radio at 1 a.m. following the postgame show, uh, I go to uh, my place of sleep. And I have always been a person who is find it difficult to wind down after a work day. So finally got to sleep uh, close to 4 o'clock in the morning. And the building that I'm in downtown, um, after a good uh, three hours of sleep or so, decides the floor above us, which has been undergoing construction for quite some time, decides that there are some other stuff that they have to do. So all of a sudden at 7.15, 7.30 in the morning, I'm hearing various <laughs> pounding and everything like that. All right, wake uh, wake up, wait that out, about 8.45. It finally uh, ceases. I close my eyes again, and uh, the schedule was to start at 11 o'clock here at WGN Radio on Thursday morning. I wake up at 10.52. And you got my text, Joe. 
ran into an issue. You know what? <laughs> I, I actually told the people above you to wake you up at, oh, at the right did. time, but they right. just had the times mixed up. So right. that's that's where the uh, right. miscommunication. So got. once I show up, a uh, discussion follows with various personnel here in the radio <laughs> where in the radio you? world about uh, boy, uh, you look like you just got up. Yes, I did, and uh, you should try different things to help you fall asleep after nights like that. But uh, I'm like on enough not, medications for other things and not listening I'm to totally construction on your way. Else like that that would help as well. So about this black. Blackhawks road trip. How about the White Sox, huh? Right, <laughs> I was going to say, about uh, talk about not getting enough sleep or just not being where you would like to be right away. That's, that's Well, that's what the Blackhawks are right now on this road trip. And uh, I remember on the pregame show on Sunday when this all started, I was talking with Troy. All right, what are you thinking? Maybe bare minimum you need uh, six points to, to come out of here, you know, feeling decent. You're still right in the thick of the race. Well, it's an offer so far after the losses in Winnipeg and then Edmonton on Tuesday and then on Vancouver on Wednesday. Vancouver, they play their best game in a long time and they get absolutely stoned by a guy who is in the zone and Jacob Markstrom. Uh, stick taps and hats off to him for a 49-save shutout. That's a Vancouver Canucks franchise record. And the Blackhawks did everything they, they possibly could and on most nights, that's going to get you two points. Unfortunately, on Wednesday night, that was not the case, Joe. No, absolutely not. Uh, I'm with you. That was one of, if not the best, consistent performance we've seen from the Blackhawks all year long. I mean, how many times have we talked about this team not playing consistently, not getting off to a good start, uh, finding that surge a little bit too late, but that was not the case. I mean, what, the first 13 shots on goal to, minutes, st- to start the game? Nothing. All from the Hawks? I mean... <laughs> The offense looked like it had its chemistry. The passing was good. But this is where you're at now with the Hawks in terms of you run into a good goaltender, which they have been the beneficiary of that so many times this year with Corey Crawford and Robin Leonard. So, okay, uh, Jacob Markstrom's just on top of his game. But you have to go back to some some of the injuries that the Blackhawks are dealing with. That impacts their depth, and that impacts what they can do when when they're playing at their best, not being able to find a goal. That was the case last night. It just never happened. There were a few things that you look at and dissect a little bit differently. I thought Kirby Doc missed a huge opportunity to slide one past Markstrom, but he goes for the backhand instead. That's a learning moment. And Kirby Doc is more than qualified to have more than one of those a game. Uh, you just set the bar so high for him because of how talented he is. Uh, the first goal that got waved off, I think everyone's correct with it being a 50-50 call. I think, I mean, yes, probably making the argument for the Hawks, but if that goal goes in and waved in a good goal, I don't think it gets overturned when they go to review. Uh, it was just not their night, and... It's a shame because they did so many things right. There's some bigger issue things that we're going to discuss here based on this 0-3 start to the road trip. Let's first get some reaction from that game on Wednesday night as the Blackhawks now have two days to sit on it before their uh, road trip resumes Saturday in Calgary and then a back-to-back the bookend trip here it begins in Winnipeg and ends in Winnipeg, both on Sundays. Uh, so uh, off to this 0-3 start, let's first hear from the captain, Jonathan Taze, after Wednesday night's 3 nothing loss in Vancouver. Getting our 
effort back to where it needs to be, and uh, we'll go from there. So, unfortunately, we couldn't find ways to find the back of the net and open the game wide up a little bit, uh, especially with the way we're playing. All four lines were engaged tonight. Is it hard to feel good about a game when it's the fifth straight loss, though? Got no other choice. Uh, you know, just sit around and sulk about it for 20 minutes, and then you kind of make a decision on how you want to react and, and get ready for the next one. So that's all we can do right now. Tip your hat sometimes. I mean, it wasn't just the shot total, but there was quality in there as well. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, give the goaltender credit, and our D-man were good around the net, clearing second chances too. So maybe that's something we can do a little bit better is getting numbers at the net. But we know the shots coming, and um, find ways to get those ugly goals. That's why you got to score this time here. How, how do you feel the younger guys are, are equipped to handle something like this at this stage of a season, losing streak? Like um, you've been uh, things like this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not easy, uh, regardless of who you are and your experience level. And you know, uh, our leaders and our, our veterans have to uh, have to take the wheel and and do the right things, say the right things, and create that energy that we need in the, in the locker room and on the bench. And then, um, you know, everyone will follow suit from there. You feel that this is still within reach that you can overcome. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of hockey left, so get the two points in the next game. That's all we can worry about right now. You just kind of unplug tomorrow with the day off and just try not to think about things. Uh, yeah, a little bit mentally, maybe just get your rest. And but it's you know it's playoff hockey right now, so we gotta take care of ourselves, make sure we got that energy, and get our legs going for the next one. Jonathan Taves, uh, again, Mr. Uh, Glass, <clears throat> excuse me, half full, uh, not necessarily half empty, but he was asked there in so many words whether uh, hope remains, whether they are still in this race. And as we record here on Thursday afternoon, the Hawks remain at 58 points, more than a week since getting that point against the Boston Bruins at the United Center. There they stand once again, six, uh, 58 points, six points behind Vegas, Arizona, Calgary, all sitting there at 64 in the Pacific in the first two positions of the wild card. And I guess what we're talking about here is, um, are they out of it or not? No, I don't think they're out of it by any means. But man, uh, you got to get on your horse here real quick and make something out of these final two games of the road trip before coming home for two and then hitting the road once again. Uh, there's still a quarter of the season left. After this road trip is over and a lot of time to play hockey, but you know, we've been, we've been kicking the can down the road for quite some time here this season. And facts are facts. They're sitting there at 0 and 3, um, after, after making some headway in what winning, what was it? Six of seven, 12 out of 17, getting themselves back into the mix here. Um, uh, they, they've stepped back again. And I think that's, Joe, that's the most frustrating part where you see some progress. And you see some advancement in their game in terms of puck management, how to play the right way. And now it seemed to regress here over the course, uh, really, since they've come back from the bye week. Yeah, exactly. This is a team that, on this road trip, has seen nothing despite adjustments being made and consistent play coming to fruition, which has been hammered so hard this year. Mathematically, are they still alive? Of course they are. Look at the standings right now. They have at least one game at hand against every team in front of them, except for Minnesota. So that's something you have to keep in mind. Clearly, we're grasping for straws here, but that's what works in the Blackhawks' favor. You're looking 58 points, six away from Arizona. They've got two games at hand compared to Arizona. Again, Minnesota, the only team with 56. I take that back. Nashville has 55 as well. That's what 
worries me the most is how many teams they have to jump. If it's just six points away from Arizona, okay, you're talking about a whole different scenario. But now you've got Winnipeg, Minnesota, and Nashville in front. And I I know fans get a little tired of of the playoff conversation, um, acting as if us talking about it will, will make it happen. But the point is... What the Hawks do in these next few weeks before this trade deadline is going to determine how they approach the trade deadline, and it's going to determine how the future of this organization is the next coming years. So that's why these games mean so much. I mean, whether or not you're rooting for the playoffs, you think the playoffs are possible or not, these next few games are huge, and clearly the players want to obtain new players, not new players, more players, more assets. So they want to win for that reason, to create a stronger playoff push. And you're seeing that effort come from the players in these last few games, but just not getting the benefit of any points is what's troublesome. And the real killer is is that you are going up now against the teams that you need to leap over, and they are not getting the job done here. Uh, I mean, uh, on this entire road trip, you know, they're finished with Calgary after Saturday night. They're finished with Winnipeg after Sunday night. They are now done with Vancouver. Uh, they have one more game against Edmonton uh, a little bit later on when they when they come back and play them in March, I believe. But these are the missed opportunities uh, on this on this road trip where they're not taking advantage of these situations where they can they're the ones being shut out when they should be the ones shutting out the teams that they're playing. And I'm not speaking in literal terms of shutting them out, but but getting two points and not allowing the opponents to get uh, any points at all. And now uh, you know the ladder gets a little taller so to speak, where, where they're missing these opportunities against these teams that they should be beating. They need to beat, need to beat, and, and they're, they're not, not taking care of business there. Well, and this is where the struggles in the beginning of the year come into play, because if they're playing consistent or even 500 hockey back in the opening months, it doesn't look as bleak as it does right now, because now you're seeing a team figuring out their system with the coach of Jeremy Colleton, and you're, you're seeing consistent play, and it's just it's coming up a little bit too late because of how deep of a hole they dug themselves into back in October and November. Uh, when After we hear from Jeremy Collison, we're going to advance our discussion here in terms of what this means now for Stan Bowman's mindset. And, um, you know, when we were last recording our podcast after the game against Boston last Wednesday night at the United Center, it was still, okay, let's see what happens in this five-game sequence, and that will kind of shape what we think Stan Bowman will be doing come the trade headline a week from Monday. And now how this 0-3 start may affect that in particular. Again, the Blackhawks played extremely well on Wednesday night in Vancouver, but moral victories isn't something what they need. Uh, Jeremy Carlton still holds on to if they continue to play the way that they did on Wednesday night, as elusive as it is and as inconsistent as it has been, that they will get their share of points. But it's getting awfully late here, and I'm not talking about the 9.30 puck drop in Vancouver on Wednesday night. We're talking about late in the season. 9.30? Try 9.45, yeah, by time, right? By the time uh, the two anthems were done <laughs> and everything like that, uh, yeah, uh, we, were, we were really stretching out. But here's head coach Jeremy Carlton after that 3 nothing loss in Vancouver. Tough to go in there after that kind of effort and uh, another loss, but um, ultimately the only way we're going to get wins is by playing to a similar level and uh, kind of reinforces the lost opportunity of the last couple games where we weren't at that level. And uh, now obviously we play well and we don't get the win and, and uh, we're, on, we're on a little bit of a, a slide. But uh, for us, we just we got to 
have another game next time out that's uh, we play just as hard and I thought uh, pretty committed to the details of the game and, and obviously we had a lot of opportunities that didn't go in um, but we just got to stick with it. How were you able to control the play and shots and goals so dominantly? Well, I think we had uh, a lot of guys going um, you know, up and down the lineup. I thought we were we're skating really well. We won a lot of 50-50s. We're pretty clean with a puck. Uh, we had a shooter's mentality. We're going to the net. Um, you know, their goaltender was outstanding. And uh, sometimes it's like that. But again, if you if we can find a way to string together a bunch of performances like that, then there's lots of points left. We can get them. Is that a skate cut on Zach Smith's hand? Yeah. Is he going to be all right? Uh, well, he's. I think he's going to be out for a little bit anyway. I'm not sure, you know, exactly timeline, but uh, I'd be surprised if he played next game. Did you have to go to the hospital or anything like that? Uh, no. Not that I know of. I saw him after the game. He seemed fine. Yeah. Get an explanation that satisfied you on the challenge? Um, well, I mean, we felt like in the moment that um, Saad didn't prevent him from making a save and uh, we felt like we had a decent chance of, of getting a goal. Uh, we feel pretty good about our penalty kill, so it was worth taking a shot. Obviously, it didn't work out, but, uh, you know, that's the way it is. Seems like it's more upbeat in the room than maybe normal team after a five-game losing streak. What is leading to that? Well, I think there's a belief in our team. We, I think, the guys in there believe we're we're good enough uh, to to uh, put a run together. Well, obviously, we need starts with one. Uh, but today was a step forward in our performance, and, and if we can continue that, and there's no reason why we can't, then uh, we'll get our wins. Power play was over five, but a few of them were really generating and getting chances. Uh, how do you feel that's progressing? Yeah, it was. Uh, we had our moments. You know, it still felt difficult to get set up on a couple of them, and, and so you, you think maybe we left something on the table there, but uh, we certainly had some opportunities and just got to find a way to put them in. That's Jeremy Carlton after uh, the Hawks fall 0-3 on this road trip with two stops to go, not the situation that they want to be in right now. And we mentioned before uh, hearing from Jeremy there about uh, what Stan Bowman's uh, mindset may be here. Um, I'm not sure if he is going to be inclined to uh, trade one of the goaltenders unless his uh, socks are knocked off. Obviously, if the opportunity presents itself and he doesn't think that there's you know going to be any chance of making the playoffs, say say this trip ends in in total disaster and you end up 0 5, and say you only split the couple of games at home coming up against the Rangers in Nashville. Uh, yeah, I might see that happening, um, be a more likelihood of seeing that happening. I don't know what the market would be for, say, you know, an Eric Gustafson or some of the other uh, older uh, veterans, be it a, a Zach Smith, provided he's healthy, or anyone else like that. But um, I, I think it, this is all dependent on, on the return. Uh, I'm not sure if Stan is necessarily inclined to, to give anyone away, whether a fourth or fifth round draft pick is anything that you know m- may entice him, or he just rolls the dice with what the roster that he has, and you know you, you cross your fingers and eyes and toes and hope for a, uh, a hot streak here uh, down the stretch. Um, but uh, not looking good after the 0 3 start to this trip. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we'll, we'll forego the slap shots questions this week. But uh, mathematically, the math is not looking good at all this season, especially 
as we mentioned before, you're you're going up head to head against these teams for the the final time. You're not taking care of business, and uh, these are the times where you you need most to put those points in your back pocket. And the Hawks are just swinging and missing, no matter the degree to which they're playing. They could have been better in Winnipeg the final two periods. They definitely could have been better in Edmonton. I don't know how much better they could have been in Vancouver, but uh, the hockey gods in that particular case, not smiling down on him at all. No, and this is what we've been talking about a lot today, but again, the adjustments have been made. This team is improving, but just not seeing it on the winning end. You're not going to get morale victories. Um, I thought their third period against Edmonton was what they needed. They needed that aggressive approach. They needed to constantly hammer the net. They did that. That bled over into the Vancouver game, and, and nothing was showing from it. Again, mathematically, yes, they're alive. If I'm Stan Bowman today, I am kicking the tires on everybody possible. I, I think, here's what I think. I think it would be worth it to see what you get for Robin Leonard and or Corey Crawford. Why not maybe dangle both out there and, and hand over to a team that's contending for a cup and they think that that's that last motivating factor that can get them that cup. Corey Crawford clearly has his ties with Chicago being here so long and winning two cups. I don't think it's that... I I don't know what Corey Crawford is thinking, but can't you can't, can't you still be enticed to come back to Chicago even if you're you're dealt for finding some value of of an expiring contract and the Robin Leonard situation too maybe the same case he's loved his time here he loves the city at least that's what he says he wants to win he's helping out the team and I'm not saying and I don't think the Hawks would try to convince him to take a pay cut. We already went down that road a few months ago, but I just see situations where when you move Robin Leonard and or Corey Crawford, you can still maybe get them back next year is what I'm saying. So if that's possible, why not try to dangle out both? Well, that's a that's a heavy roll of the dice, though, counting on that to happen. You know, And, and whether you want to, if you end up losing both of them, whether you want to hang your hat on Colin Dealey and Kevin Lankinen, who are down in Rockford right now, um, I, I would... Uh, I would say Stan checks the market on both of them, only perhaps if he's going, I think the most extreme he gets is dealing only one of them in order to to keep the other here. Uh, I would imagine that the preference would be to uh, convince Robin Leonard to be that guy to remain here. Um, But beyond that, I don't know how, uh, how, marketable some of the other guys are who would, uh, you would think might, might, you know, bring you a decent return. And then the other problem you have here, the other concern you have, I don't think Alex DeBrinckit's season is a long-term problem. I think this will be more of an aberration or not. But really the one that I'm starting to perhaps scratch my head about a little bit, and, and I don't want to do this, but based on his play this season and based on his history from what he was going through in Arizona, when Dylan Strome came here last year, he was a real good player, and it gave you uh, reason for hope of, of, yeah, you got another young player you can build around. I still think that's there in them. I think he's just going through a, a crisis of confidence right now. But to end up being a healthy scratch a couple of games ago and um, not see perhaps the response that you wanted, whether this is because he's being moved to wing, an unfamiliar position to him. I don't know how much going back to center would necessarily help his game. Probably to a certain degree, but um, uh, again, of, of those two guys who were so productive as teammates back in junior play, um, 
with what we've seen here from Dylan Strome here this season, especially here, I'm not talking early on, but especially here in the most recent stretch uh, prior to his injury and now coming off of it, I think the you know uh, there may be a little concern and and what he may be doing is giving the hawks a break in his in his contract talks too in terms of what they may have to pay him to keep him around too that's an interesting point uh, i didn't think about that um i i definitely think that the injuries that Dylan Strom has been dealing with this year have played a role in maybe his lack of consistency yeah, concussion high ankle sprain yeah and and Again, with this team having so many offensive struggles, that can be contagious. And especially with his line mate and best friend of Alex Dabrinkit. Now, Alex Dabrinkit has said, Jeremy Colleton has said, Dylan Strome has said, just because the goals aren't there doesn't mean that Alex Dabrinkit isn't making a difference offensively. He's still creating chances. He's still doing the things that he typically would do. But But clearly, there's something missing this season. I do agree with you that I see this way more temporary than long-term for Alex to bring it. Now, is it more temporary than Dylan Strome? I don't know, because he has had those demons in the past with Arizona. Uh, now that you mention it, Mark Lazarus had a great piece in The Athletic about playing with confidence and losing it and how to gain it back. And um, oh, The greatest players in the world right. are suddenly scratching their heads, and it feels like the weight of the world is upon them. And the coolest, or the most interesting part I found in that was Dylan Strome, when he came to Chicago, they, they told him to get an apartment. Get an apartment in the city, you're going to be here. And that was such a confidence boost for him. It's a big reason why he was an impact right away. But th- that's that's an interesting point and uh, something to look forward down or look at towards the line, down the line, that is. Um, who, who's is more temporary, Alex DeBrinkett or Dylan Stroms? All right, so um, let's say uh, the Hawks come up empty on this road trip. Uh, and we started this podcast talking about Troy and I discussing. You want six points out of it. What if you come away with zero? I, I mean, does that put the stamp now on the season? I think it should. I, I, I again, I, and I think a lot. You don't of, want to think about it that way. By any <laughs> no, means. of course, especially not. as your pre and post game host and friendly reporter <laughs> inside the Blackhawks locker room, have to, having to talk to uh, players after games. Well, and, and you bring up another point. I thought Jonathan Taves and. Connor Murphy's approach yesterday in the dressing room was, I mean, I wasn't there, but I I watched it and listened to it. They're upbeat because, like Tave said, what else can we do? We played our best game, arguably, all year long, and we didn't come away with two points. We can't just sulk about it. we got to move on. Of course these are must-win games. Of course the players know that. But when you give your full-on effort and you shoot 50 times at the goalie, but he comes up with fantastic saves, yes, what else are you to do? Um, I... I think just hit the sale button right now. I think a lot of Blackhawks fans are thinking that too. Clearly, that's not going to be the case until further down the line. I mean, Stan Bowman and you ask anybody in the front office, they still think this is a playoff caliber team. Maybe it is, but again, they dug themselves such a hole, such such of a deep hole earlier in the year. Now you find the problem of digging yourself out of it, even when you're playing some solid hockey. The bottom line is, as uh, we record her on February 13th, 11 days clear of this trade deadline, uh, they have not proven that they are a playoff team based on results. And that's that's uh, the bottom line as far as all of that is concerned. And uh, again, we'll, uh, we'll have... Uh, more discussion on this as, as we go along, and uh, when we record our next podcast, I think uh, it will be even further shaped as to uh, which direction Stan Bowman is going. So, by the way, Jacob Markstrom, um, a free agent as well, 
I don't think Vancouver in the position that they are in, especially after that performance, is looking to deal him at the trade deadline. But they do have an interesting decision to make here. they got a couple of guys in their system, including the backup right now, Thatcher Demko, uh, who looks to be a pretty decent goaltender. Markstrom is 30 years old. But uh, with that performance that he had on Wednesday night, uh, it's almost like you almost uh, feel inclined you have to pay the man. And uh, he was absolutely dynamite last night. So he is another one of those goalies who could be on the market, along with the Corey Crawfords of the world, the Robin Leonard's, and a couple of others who uh, um, uh, may not be having as good a season as those three in particular. But uh, if none of them are signed or moved, it creates uh, quite an interesting market for goaltenders in the offseason. So, Joe, uh, 1980, where were you? (laughs) We did the math earlier. I was negative 11. Negative 11. Well, back in 1980, I was uh, uh, 17 years old at the time that uh, some political tensions were going on in this world between the United States and uh, Russia, among other countries as well. And uh, it became, the politics became a platform that kind of crept into sports in those 1980 Winter Olympics in the burgeoning burg of Lake Placid, New York. And I remember um, vaguely as I was in the midst of trying to be a good student in high school and uh, try and uh, what do you mean uh, trying find, to be? You a, were a good find student. A way, find a way to uh, find a way to uh, uh, raise prospects for my uh, basketball career, which never <laughs> ended up uh, happening. Uh, the 1980 Olympics happened in Lake Placid, New York, and it was an incredible experience for the U.S. Olympic hockey team. And a number of those players would go on to have uh, good to great NHL careers. But it was really a storybook situation with the way the United States team made up uh, largely amateurs and college kids, not like we've seen more recently where NHL players were allowed to play in the Olympics. And, uh, you, you know, you, you wonder if that situation is ever going to happen again. Uh, I think the players want to do that. It's uh, an issue that remains to be seen from scheduling and uh, the players union and the commissioner and the league, all the teams as well. But um uh, guys like Jack O'Callaghan, who eventually became a member of the Blackhawks, he was already a draft pick of the Blackhawks, uh, went to Boston University, was an excellent player there, one of the best players in the entire country. He was a part of that uh, 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that just got crushed in a couple of Olympic games by that Russian team, which basically at that time was made up of professionals, uh, the greatest players in the world. And there have been a couple of documentaries that we've seen about uh, what they were put through, uh, basically a member of the nation's army, but then specialized those, uh, specialized into their hockey careers. And uh, it was a full-time job for those guys in particular. So basically it was a bunch of college kids and amateurs going up against a professional team of the uh, highest caliber players in the Soviet Union at the time. There was a bit of a Cold War going on, and uh, nevertheless – uh, those countries played along with everyone else in Lake Placid, New York. And when it came down to the semifinals, it was a U.S. team that lost 10 to 3 or 10 to 4, I think two weeks before the Olympic tournament in an exhibition against that Russian team. And uh, they came up with the miracle. And uh, you've heard the great call from Al Michaels at the time. You've seen a couple of documentaries and movies that were made as well. But Jack O'Callaghan was front and center in that team, even though he wasn't able to play in the entire tournament due to an injury. But he was able to return right before that semifinal matchup 
with the Soviet Union, in which all odds were stacked against them. And I had a chance to visit with Jack O'Callaghan, who's uh, good for him. Stay, uh, lived in Chicago here for a while, was part of uh, running a financial services company, too, and uh, is now down in Florida full-time playing golf rather than fighting through the snow that we're finding here on Wednesday and Thursday in Chicago. And I had a chance to catch up with him. If you didn't hear it on the post-game show on uh, Sunday night following the loss to Winnipeg, here's our visit with Jack O'Callaghan taking us through um, some of the bullet points of that 1980 team and a little bit of memories from his time with the Blackhawks and his old teammate Troy Murray, too. We began our discussion when I asked uh, Jack whether he can even wrap his mind around the fact that it has been four decades since that miraculous game in Lake Placid. Yeah, it, it flew by, right? So 40 years, I mean, I was 22 now, I'm 62, and uh, um, it's, you know, it happens, right? The clock keeps ticking, and... Um, it's been a nice 40 years, though, when it comes to the Olympic part of it. I mean, fortunately, I'm still healthy and, and uh, active and all that stuff, and I'm still working and gainfully employed and everything. And, um, but it's, I've had, you know, 40 years of a tailwind of fun conversations with people from all over the place, and uh, that's been a very enjoyable part of it for me. Is that game against Russia, has it blurred over the years, or is it still very clear in your mind, or are there specific moments that remain clear in your mind? And obviously, everyone talks about this game with the knowledge that you still had to beat Finland in one more game to capture the gold, but everyone talks about that one game. How clear is it still 40, uh, 40 years later? Well, you know, 40 years later, Chris, nothing's really that clear, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it is memorable parts of it, right? We know we played them. We know we won. Uh, you know, seeing 10 minutes on the clock when Michael Rizzioni scored in the third period with exactly 10 minutes on the clock is something that really stands out. Some of the interactions we had in the locker room, uh, some of the interactions we had, uh, you know, on the bench in, in those last 10 minutes and just sort of Herbie, you know, maintaining his calm as a coach and, and us maintaining our focus and really being committed to playing a good, solid defensive game. Uh, we had played them a couple of weeks prior in Lake, uh, in New York City, and, and we, we played them more of an open, we tried to play them in a more of an open skating, kind of wide-open style, and that was not a smart move against the Russians. Mm-hmm. So they, they beat us 10-3. to 3. But we had, a, we had a different mindset in the game that counted in Lake Placid on that Friday night in the semifinals. And uh, um, so, you know, it was really a, it was just a, step-by-step, kind of maintain our game plan, um, keep the game close, you know, don't let them get two, two or three ahead of us. We were able to do that. You know, we were down one nothing, tied it at one. We were down 2-1, tied it at two at the end of the first. Uh, they came at us pretty with a pretty good barrage in the second period after they had pulled Trejek and um, put Michigan in, and uh, we withstood that barrage. So we were in the locker room at the end of the second period, only down one against the Russians, and we thought that that's where we needed to be. We, we had talked about it. We needed to be either tied or down one going into the third period. You know, we couldn't be down three, two or three or four, right? Mm-hmm. So we kind of, you know, it was following the script that we had sort of in our minds. We knew we needed to do. We needed. We knew we needed to be close going into the third. Um, so, you know, we were there. And then in the third period, we just went out with a lot of emotion. And we were a good hockey team with a lot of good players. And we were very fit. And, um, you know, we got good goaltending. And, you know, the rest is history, right? We, we tied it up early. And then... Tied it up with about 11 minutes left, and then Mike scored with 10 minutes left, and then we just kind of, you know, we didn't just hang on. I mean, the one thing we, we did do in, in that last 10 minutes, we didn't just back in. We, we did play aggressively. We had 
a couple of breakaways in that last 10 minutes. I mean, we could have beaten them by two or three. Mm. Um, and we shut them down pretty good. So that, those are some memories I have. And obviously the aftermath of the game was pretty exciting. And and the way you approach that, the finish to that game, probably you know, could be good advice for some of these teams who tend to go into a shell when they have that yeah. kind of lead, you know, even to this day. Now, you guys were down one nothing, and, and one thing that uh, a lot of people keep coming back on is a, a hit that you delivered to a Soviet player that you know, oh, yeah. may have been a little bit of a wake-up yeah. call. What do you remember about that hit and how it set up the, the tying goal? I, I don't have really. I, that's just the way I played. So yeah. For me, kind of finishing my check was just how I always play the game. And, and um then, you know, again, in 1980, I was, uh, it's not like I liked Russians, you know, so <laughs> any chance you, you get, any chance you had back then to take a run at a Russian, I mean, you took it and you, you, you put a little extra juice in it to make sure. So maybe that, um, was a worthwhile, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've seen it in the movie and I've seen highlights of it. So yeah, I know what happened, but, uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, like I said, it's just something I did normally. I would do that in my sleep. Yeah, that photograph has faded a little bit in the, in the memory bank. Now, <laughs> now, tell, tell us a little bit about how how much in danger, how much fear did you have that uh, you wouldn't be able to play through this tournament? Because I, I, I know you had that, that knee injury yeah. early on yeah. or right before, and, um, you know, how much did you have to push it in order to... Well, I, I, uh, I you know, I... I hurt myself in the game against the Soviets down in New York City. So I tore my ligaments in my left leg and took a really bad hit, you know, because, again, I'm a competitive lunatic, and I was we were probably losing, you know, 6-1. to one, And I, here I am trying to make it 6-2, to two, charging up ice. And one of these, you know, Russian defensemen came across with a hip check, and he almost knocked my leg off. So uh, it carried me off the ice, and it didn't look good. I mean, I called my parents and told them I wasn't going to be on the team. And, there was one doctor, this guy, Richard Stedman, who's one of the most famous orthopedic surgeons in the United States. Um, and, and he was the one doctor that actually believed that I could recover enough in two, two days to stay on the roster. So Herbie gave me two days to see what I could do with some rehab and recovery, a pretty aggressive uh, program for two days. I mean, you know, exercise as hard as I could for an hour and then rest for an hour and a half, two hours and go back at it for another hour. I mean, I did that nonstop for two days. So I was sleeping, you know, in one hour increments, waking up, working out again. I, hmm. you know, working on, I had a great trainer, this guy, Bruce Cole. So, I mean, the end of the day is when I, before they put the rosters in, Stedman pulled these other doctors in and they all looked at my lady and they all couldn't believe how much I had recovered. So I still missed two games. You know, Herbie kept me on the team and, and he knew I wasn't going to play as much as I normally had. I mean, I was, I played all the time, you know, defenseman-wise. I mean, I, you know, I was the leading scoring defenseman on the team. I led the league team in penalty minutes, and and uh, I played all the time. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't playing as much. So, uh, in retrospect, you know, it's probably a good thing that I hurt my knee because who knows how I might have screwed that whole thing up had I been playing the normal shift. <laughs> <laughs> you. Uh... By the time I came to Chicago afterwards, uh, I mean, I played. I missed the first two. I played the next five games. You know, the movie had me coming back in dramatic fashion. <laughs> playing against the Russians, but I, I had actually played, uh, you know, I only missed the Swede in the Czech game, but um, I played the next five. But when I came to Chicago and Dr. Kolb looked at me, uh, you know, he just didn't think I could play. And he's probably right. I probably shouldn't have been playing. I was, I was taped from my toe to my hip in a, in a squat position. So it was probably kind of unrealistic, but again, I'm a hockey player. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, if I could get a skate on, I was, I was going to go play. Now you overlapped a little bit with Aruzioni over at BU, correct? So Mike, when I went in, I was a freshman at BU, and Mike was a, a junior, and okay. then uh, you know a sophomore year, Mike was the captain, 
And then my junior year, I was a captain of the team. We won the NCAA yeah. championships, and Mike Mike had gone and played in minor pro, like not mm. the American League, like the Wolves level, but the next level down. Back then it was called the International League. And Mike was playing in Toledo, and he had two great seasons, but um, – yeah, he wasn't going anywhere from there, and he knew it. So he was in a trial for the Olympic team, and he always he he, he always says team, he was know, he, he was he always says what? he was surprised that he was named captain. Well, he he, he was surprised he, he even made the team. I mean, yeah. he, you know that league was a was a non professional league, so he was able to qualify for an Olympic trial. He made the team, and you know the thing about Mike is you know he was a little older, right? So I was twenty two. Billy Baker, the guys had graduated in seventy nine. We were twenty two. Mike was twenty five, probably, and. You know, he's a little older. He had been a captain. I mean, look, every guy in that team had been a captain of his team. So it it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, Mike, they put the C on Mike, and then it was like all of a sudden nobody had anything to say. Mm-hmm. We were a team full of leaders and competitors and, and uh, excellent college players. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it was a team full of captains. But Mike definitely, you know, he was a good guy. He bridged the gap from the Eastern guys, the Western guys, and, and he was a good face of the team. And, uh and then, of course, you know he scores a big goal, so you know he he wasn't painting he wasn't painting bridges anymore. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> what what kind of similarities and differences were there between Jack Parker and Herb? Um, well, it was just a different time, I, I guess. I don't know. We played sixty games or sixty five games over the course of our preseason. We had to train to play in a in you know against international tremendously talented teams. So. Um, Parker was very emotional, you know, and very rigid, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, tic-tac-toe, like our power play. Everybody knew what it was, but he's like, if we execute, it doesn't matter if they know. He, so he was very rigid that way. Herbie was more of a tactical guy as far as, as far as the tech, you know, the way they, they taught the game. He was more, taught us more of a free-flowing style, which was a little weird for me to learn. Hmm. Um, but most importantly, what we, what we, we did on that Olympic team, aside from the, the, you know, the development of the hockey player, um, it was the physical off-ice training that we did. We were so fit. I, le- I learned so much about training off-ice, which is what, what no one did back in the late 70s, even in the NHL or anywhere. I mean, I never lifted weights or I used to run. And, but with Herbie, we, we trained a lot off the ice. So that was a big difference between the two of them. Uh, they were both great coaches. Um, but, I mean, I was ready for her by the time I got there, and I was ready to play a little more, you know, free-flowing type of game. Um, and develop my athletic ability on top of it. So uh, they were both both great guys. I mean, without without either one of them, had I not had both of them, I don't think I ever would have been able to play as a pro. I mean, I just I just improved so much um, with Jack at BU, and then with Herbie, I just kind of ramped it up to another level. So, speaking of the pros, um, it what what can you uh, remember most, or what do you value most about your time with the Blackhawks? How much spend, how much time do you spend watching them? And, and most importantly for me. What was Troy Murray like as a teammate? Yeah, Troy. Well, Troy's pretty good. You know, like he came in, we came in right around the same time. He's yeah. a little younger than me. I, I had spent a couple of years in the minors, you know, but we went down there and it's a Moncton and we want to call the cup one year. So the next year I came up with Steve Larmer. And of course I'm a little older than those guys, but, but Larmer and Dave Feimster and, and Steve Ludzik. And then Troy kind of came to the team right around that or maybe the year before, but he was coming out of North Dakota and, uh, you know, he was another. He was like another one of those guys. He would have been a great guy on an Olympic team because he was just a talented, hard-charging, competitive guy. He was a leader. You know, very talented. But you know, obviously, he he refused to lose. Man, it was my kind of player all day long. And uh, one of one of you know great memories of him as a teammate. And you, you know, he's one of those guys. You, 
he'll go to bat for you, and you know, you you do anything to go to bat for him. He's just that kind of guy. So you're never going to get me to throw him under the bus. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that wasn't the intention. That wasn't the intention. As we wrap up here, I, I, you're probably keeping fairly close tabs on the Hawks, kind of a similar situation as a year ago. But I know probably your your biggest priority right now with what's in front of you is the bean pot tomorrow night. With, with well, you know, BU, BU won. I was there last <laughs> week when they, they when that double overtime game against BC, which is pretty cool. And then yeah. they got beat four one by Merrimack the other night, so that wasn't so great. So maybe they'll get their act together tomorrow night. But uh, yeah, you know, I look. I had a great time playing playing with the Hawks and living in Chicago and being part of the alumni. And you know, I'm still a Blackhawk at heart. And um, and it was so much fun to watch them through the years. And you know, when they. You know, when, when Dale was the GM and they, he was building that team and then watched them all come together with Patrick and Jonathan and, and Dunks and, 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 you know, and Seabrook and all these guys. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just been great. And I'm really excited for them now. It seems like they're pulling their stuff together again. And so, yeah, I got high hopes for all, you know, as to the finish here. I really hope they finish strong and, and get a chance to compete again in the playoffs. Jack, thanks, thanks so much for the visit. Uh, we appreciate your time and uh, keep hitting them straight out there, okay? Yeah, yeah. Fun down here in Florida, man. I'll I bet. Escaped from Chicago. We're all so jealous. I'll see you guys later. All right. Thanks, Thanks Jack. Tonight. Take yeah. care. So Jack was not going to throw our partner Troy Murray under the bus. I don't think anybody should particularly do that uh, either, especially me, since i got to sit next to him. He, he throws a lot of people under the bus, though. Someone's <laughs> got to give him his, his payback every once in a while. Uh, yeah, so uh, great catching up with Jack O'Callaghan, catching all those memories. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll let Joe catch up on uh, reading up in history books about that. Uh, I, I was going to say, that lead-in, I feel like it was Chris Bowden saying, all right, gather around, kids, no, around I'm the fireplace. A, let me it, tell you about a little miracle that old, happened. Your old, crusty pre- and post-game host, Chris Bowden. I remember back in the day, back in 1980, before Joe was even a glint in his uh, parents' eyes uh, back in the day. But uh, always a great visit with uh, with Jack O'Callaghan, still a part of the Blackhawks family and community as well. And uh, speaking of community, uh, let's circle back to, um, I, I think, from what all intents and purposes, I only heard it. From what Troy and and John said, uh, the pregame ceremony, even though Blackhawks fans do not want to hear about the Sedin twins, Dave Boland was not a part of the uh, of the salute and the retirement ceremony. He couldn't for the, make it; he wasn't invited. <laughs> for the nor was uh, oh Duncan Keith was there, but he decided not to show up on the ice for for that ceremony. But uh, I thought it was interesting, especially for all the pomp and circumstance that they brought back, and all those lovely names that Blackhawk fans adore so much, from your Alex Burrows to your Kevin Bieksas. Uh, to your uh, Ryan Kesslers, they were part of that ceremony, and Roberto Luongo as well. Uh, they stretched that thing out, gave the Sedin twins their due. And let's face it, they were great players for the Vancouver Canucks um, and uh, back in the day. And uh, they stretched that ceremony out, but I thought they did it the right way, and they told everybody to come in early, and they did what ended up being, I think, about a, a half hour or so, maybe more than that, before the teams came out for warm-ups a half hour or so before the game started. And, um, you know, I think Vancouver's the type of hockey market where, and, and with the, the caliber of players that the Sedin Twins were, that uh, they were able to get it done in a pregame ceremony. I don't know how many of the Canucks players were out there necessarily watching. I, I didn't get a grasp of that. But the timeline wasn't broken for when they would normally drop a puck for a game in Vancouver. But uh, since all the ceremony was played out before that. But uh, I don't know if that affected the Vancouver Canucks at all. I'd like to think it was more the Blackhawks being assertive. But uh, it was a bit of a sluggish start. And in the end, it doesn't end up helping the Blackhawks either in losing 3 nothing. 
You're right. Well, clearly, going. Or just want to go back a little bit with the Sedine mention. Yes, they were. They were so despised by Blackhawks fans because they were so good, which made for such a great rivalry. And and that's the Vancouver Canucks chapter is so pivotal in the Blackhawks dynasty run. So it was kind of cool going back, reliving all those memories. Uh, NBC Sports Chicago had a great highlight collage package, whatever. <laughs> I still love Dustin Bufflin scoring, I think, his hat-trick goal, and he's got his arms extended as he's gliding yeah. along the corner of the ice. One of the fans is hitting the glass. It's it's just so fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about these pregame ceremonies. Eddie Olchek talked about it before the game, or rather during the game, saying his idea is to have the ceremony the day before. You can sell tickets. You can open up the place, you know, sell concessions, and then that way it doesn't impact, number one, the start time of the game the next day, and number two, uh, how it might impact the teams. And I I do like that idea. I I feel like that might be a little complicated, whatever. But why, yeah, why can't we just do this a little bit earlier? Why can't we do it at 6 o'clock, let's say? You open the gates up maybe an hour earlier than you normally would. You get a little bit more money with concessions. Fans are going to come, especially on the Hawks' side. Um, and then just have the players mosey on in. If they want to come, then then they're there already. It doesn't impact their timeline of getting ready. This would be around the time when they're like stretching in the hallways or something like that. Just make sure they're wearing some quarter zips and you know hanging out by the bench. I just feel like it could be such a cool, such a cool moment, such a cool event. And then hey, you just wait. Fans wait around for another extra half hour before the game to start, uh, and then it doesn't impact the start of the game. And, and that's the thing. You know, everyone was talking about before how these ceremonies, if they bleed into the start time of the game, they actually benefit the visiting team because you're just a little bit. More ready to go. Mm-hmm. You're not as focused on the ceremony as the home team. Like you said, Blackhawks got up to a great start. It didn't end up working out. I wanted to go back and, and look at the record for the Hawks on, on these pregame ceremonies. Uh, clearly the most recent one was Patrick Kane's 1,000th point. That was yeah. the Joel Quinville game. So a lot of emotions uh, rolling in there. But but the Blackhawks didn't win. Again, one game. I know that's the smallest sample size there is. Um, but but I think it's interesting. You know, why not, hey, make a little bit more money from it and entertain both sides without impacting the start of the game? Well, unlike Miracle on Ice, you were old enough to remember uh, those three consecutive seasons which the Blackhawks and the Canucks faced off in the playoffs. I and, was. Those, and those were seminal moments for this franchise. And, and, and you talk about rivalries. You know, you have you have you have Bears, Packers, you have Cubs, Cardinals, and this is a smaller sample size uh, with rivalries. I, I mean, it was Blackhawks, Canucks back in 1983 when I when I when I can go back to uh, my earlier days of covering. But I was fortunate enough to be around and cover those series where. This is when it clicked and kicked in for the Blackhawks. Those those great series against the Canucks, the 9 where the Blackhawks fell a little bit short. They couldn't get over the hump in the following series against Detroit. But uh, that's when things really started getting nasty between the Blackhawks and the Canucks in that 9 series. Patrick Kane has the hat trick in the clincher here at the United Center. Roberto Luongo is crying in the locker room afterwards because he knows uh, as as one of the leaders of that team, he has to go back to Vancouver and that uh, that team that had so many expectations let his city down and then in 2010 when I got a chance to travel with the team as well in that uh, second round series against the Canucks just being able to experience the highs and the lows of 
okay, the Blackhawks are up 3-1. They're back home for Game 5. They're going to clinch it here, and then they lose. And then they have to go back to Vancouver for Game 6, and they clinch it there. And the kind of momentum that and belief that it built uh, both in the city and the team itself uh, in terms of being able to advance itself and and uh, have confident, confidence in itself and win a Stanley Cup. And then the following season in 2011 in the first round when the Blackhawks barely got into the playoffs and it was Vancouver that held the expectations. Hawks are down 3 nothing. They rally to tie the series at 3 only to lose in overtime on the Burroughs goal in Game 7 in Vancouver. That's what makes sports great is when you find that one team where you know you are dropping the gloves and and putting up your dukes and going head to head with in consecutive seasons. Uh, that was that was really a thrill ride in terms of the Blackhawks building up the 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 power of this organization back in the day. The fact that it's a rivalry drawn up that's not your traditional rivalry. I mean, right. you bring up the, the fights and, and the battles they had in the 80s, but still, it was nothing. Two franchises and organizations and groups of players that wanted the same thing. Yeah, and had mutual respect for each other. I mean, well, and, I don't know about that. Well, <laughs> maybe mutual now. Hate. Maybe now, yeah, right. Maybe now, but back then, oh, man. It Did was you just, say you thought you saw Taves wearing a, a Sidney yes, McCallan? Yes, I, I, I'm almost positive. we got to go to Paul Lucas on Twitter. He's the guy that <laughs> brings up all those uniform blemishes or things like that. But yes, I saw a 22-33 on the back of Taves' helmet. I want to say all the Hawks wore it. I thought that was very odd. Yeah. I, I think... I. Uh, clearly, there's nothing wrong with the home team doing that, but for the visiting team, and especially the Blackhawks, I don't know if they. I'm sure they planned this to be against the Hawks so that yeah. they. Could, oh yeah, they did. Yeah. No so, but I don't know. I just found that very weird. But I, I'm a guy that that found it weird. I think a lot of other people did too. But Derek Jeter's retirement year, how they had a number two stitched on all of the Yankees caps, and the guy's still on the team. It's right. like, uh, come on. But yeah, I, I found it very odd that they they made the Blackhawks wear. Um, uh, an ode to the Sedins on their uniforms. Yes, uh, unusual to say the least, especially knowing the the history of that rivalry and some of the players who are still out on the ice involved in that. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Blackhawks Crazy Podcast presented by Fanless. We're going to come your way again on uh, Thursday morning of next week, uh, following up after the Wednesday game against the New York Rangers. By this time, the Hawks definitely need to have themselves a three-game winning streak at this point, or else uh, the tone of our podcast is going to be quite different. We're going to have to start getting very creative. Um, no. Talk about no, we don't want to do that. No, we don't. But especially we with guys who oversleep and uh, you know, <laughs> dragging the creative juices out of the- <laughs> take a little bit longer to <laughs> right. get flowing. Exactly. In that case. So uh, let's uh, certainly hope that the Blackhawks this three nothing loss to Vancouver, as the guys and head coach Jeremy Colleton were saying afterwards, is a positive and a springboard to better things. So it's Calgary on Saturday, Winnipeg on Sunday, then back home for games against the Rangers on Wednesday, and then the Nashville Predators on Friday. We will again come to you uh, Thursday morning after that game against the New York Rangers. Uh, Thanks to everyone for helping out. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Curtis Koch, our producer, for putting it all together. Thanks to Ernie Skatton as well. Again, we encourage you to subscribe and listen to the Blackhawks Crazy Podcast presented by FanList on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. We also tweet out a link, as always, to uh, our fresh editions, uh, both on our Twitter accounts. I'm at at Bowden Tweets. Joe's at Joe underscore brand one. And we will also have it uh, tweeted out or or the link sent out on uh, WGNRadio.com. Again, Blackhawks needing 
Very much so. A couple of wins here to finish out this road trip as they fall six points behind in the wild card as we taper on Thursday afternoon. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you again next Thursday morning. Thanks for listening to the Blackhawks Crazy Podcast. Tell a friend, subscribe, and join the conversation. And follow the guys on Twitter at Bowden Tweets and at Joe underscore brand one. That was great.